0: This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309.
1: This is News Talk KGVO,
2: AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO. Missoula's News and Weather Station.
3: Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Thursday, January 4th, 2024 edition of Talkback. Talk Back this morning is brought to you by Phillips Janitorial, where they offer residential and commercial cleaning, and no job is too big or small for them, and your satisfaction 100% guaranteed. Call 406-260-6617. Also brought to you by Ywest Storage out at the Y. Uh, call for pricing and availability right now at 406-510-0590 at Ywest Making room for you. Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts. No matter how cold it gets, Gomer's has everything you need to make sure your rig starts every time. Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts and Service at Palmer and West Broadway. And with brand new uh, Talkback Sponsor to introduce today, welcome to Harrington Surgical Supply. Their mission remains the same, to restore confidence and comfort into your daily life. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Hey, welcome, everyone. Glad to have you along. And uh, Nick Christensen right over there. Good morning, Mr. Nick. Good morning. And we are privileged to have with us the Honorable Greg Gianforte, the governor of the state of Montana, who's joining us uh, from Bozeman this morning. Uh, uh, Governor, first of all, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us. If you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about why you're there in Bozeman, sir.
0: Well, we're having an event. Oh, first, Happy New Year, Peter and Nick. Same good to you. To be sir. with you. How about them grizz? How about them grizz? We're pretty excited about that. How about them grizz? I, 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 I want to make a point. I'll, I'll, address your question in a second. But I, I have a little wager with uh, Governor Nome on this game. In fact, I, we were, she called me and we're talking a little smack. <laughs> I sent her a picture of a grizzly bear on its hind legs holding a dead jackrabbit. And, uh, ouch! ouch. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes, but we're going to be rooting for the Grizz down in mm. Frisco this weekend. So I'm pretty excited about that. But anyway, back to your question. Yes, sir. Um, I am here. We've proclaimed January human trafficking awareness month. And this is a heinous crime that affects unfortunately too many people. In fact, in Montana, uh, we've seen a doubling in the number of cases just since 2021. We attribute that primarily to our porous southern border. So working with the attorney general, I'll be with him later this morning, as well in law, as law enforcement, we're highlighting some of the things we're doing to combat human trafficking in Montana. And in particular, the attorney general championed some legislation that increased penalties for sex traffickers in Montana. We provided prosecutors more tools to bring people to justice. And we've also changed the law to expand the definition of human trafficking. And I'll be at this event later this morning, not only with the attorney general and uh, Dan Springer, the sheriff for Gallatin County and the chief from Belgrade, but also uh, Lowell from the lifeguard group, therefore from Missoula who... Uh, Critical part of the solution, nonprofit that helps young ladies that are escaping human trafficking get back on their feet and recover. So that's what we're focused on today is bringing awareness. And I just want to say to folks if you see something suspicious, call 911. Uh, the police have the tools to apprehend these sex traffickers and get help for the young ladies that are trapped that way.
3: Governor, I do know that you've been working very closely with the entire business and governmental uh, uh, agencies throughout the state of Montana to coalesce them into an effort to try to bring an end to this in Montana because uh, whether it's at a rest stop or at a truck stop or whatever, uh, if people can keep their eyes open to the signs of what may be human trafficking, they can go a long way toward ending it in Montana.
0: That's right. The Canellis at Town Pump have been very helpful putting informative signage in every restroom in the Town Pumps across the state. So people know how to get help for themselves. Uh, the we- beer and wine distributors have trained all of their drivers because often they're pulling up to the back door of a uh, truck stop or a restaurant or a bar, which is, you know, places where traffickers might be so that those drivers can now essentially be scouts when they see something suspicious they can call law enforcement.
3: Now now, governor I know one of the things that Austin Knudsen has spoken about quite a bit when he's been on our show about this topic is increasing the penalties for human trafficking here in Montana. How has that been addressed by your administration and by the legislature?
0: Yeah, that, the, Jody Etchart, Representative Etchart, introduced a bill on, at the request of the Attorney General, and I was proud to sign it into law here in 20, well, last year in 2023. I'm kind of trying to remember what year I'm in. But um, that did significantly increase penalties for human trafficking here in Montana. We also gave prosecutors new tools. In fact, we'll hear from Dan Springer, the sheriff in Gallatin County. They recently made an arrest. They used some of these tools we put into law just this year to help them apprehend these individuals.
4: Yeah, Mr. Governor, uh, Attorney General Knudsen also mentioned uh, he was able to su- successfully advocate for two new human trafficking agents. How, how much is that going to help?
0: Well, we need uh, we need heat on the street. And that, and that's what that's all about. And again, we work very closely with the attorney general. Uh, we had actually requested both the attorney general and myself had requested some additional resources. Uh, the legislature saw fit to give us a couple of additional people. Uh, and that's going to help It's And, and again, I want to, Emphasize. We've seen an increase in that. That's why we need people to be uh, cognizant when they're out. If they see something, say something. Uh, this increase has been driven primarily by our poorest southern border. It's one more reason why we need to secure the border.
3: Uh, Governor, I know one, one of the things that uh, these go hand in hand is drug trafficking and human trafficking. And I know that one uh, Attorney General Knowson here, he drew, he drew that comparison as well. How will you address this at, at the summit that you're going to have today?
0: Well, we're going to hear from law enforcement about what they've been seeing on the street, how these new tools we've given them have helped them do their job, uh, and I'm there to listen. So, if there's, we're not done by any means, uh, and I'm hoping to get some feedback today from the the chief in Belgrade, the the uh, uh, sheriff for Gallatin County, on what additional tools they need in their toolbox. We've made great progress but there's still more more work to be done.
3: Will there will there be uh, uh tools if you will you just mentioned tools in the toolbox uh that uh, future legislative leg- legislative sessions will be able to provide as we begin to come uh, to know more and more about this problem.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the point. Uh we the there's twofold purpose with our event today. One is to bring awareness to this. It's it's been kind of a hidden crime. Uh, it's, uh, and it's important that people are aware that this is really modern-day slavery, and it's going on in our communities across the state. Uh, we've seen an uptick, and the first step to combating it uh, is awareness. So we want people to know if they see something, call 911. It's often that uh, a trafficker might have a young gal at a, at a truck stop or at a bar or someplace. It looks suspicious. Um, say something. Well, because if you wait, they're not there anymore.
3: I was going to say that, that Nick has done a, did a story several months ago about uh, a place here in Missoula that was doing human trafficking. And uh, some, some very uh, 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 observant people called it in. And they broke that case wide open thanks to people uh, getting involved and saying, hey, there's something going on here. Yeah, we want to shine
0: a bright light on this. What law enforcement has told us repeatedly is that... Uh, this has been in the shadows, and we need to shine a bright light on it so that no young gal or adult gets trafficked and, and manipulated in this way. It's just tragic. And then we got to make sure there are resources there to help these young ladies recover. And that's what the Lifeguard Group and the Her Campaign, two excellent nonprofits that operate here in the state, are helping these ladies uh, get into recovery and, and get their lives back
4: and we also spoke with the lifeguard group about um that national hotline number and how important that is for them uh one 406 stop for maybe those gals that are being trafficked i mean to to know that that number's out there as well as that i know they have a 24 7 live chat as well i think that's 406 stop.com could you talk a little bit about those as well
0: well, we these these are important resources, uh, and one of the things we need to do is help all law enforcement, as well as the general public, be aware of the signs. And whether you call the 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 hotline or you just call nine one one, we need to intervene quickly uh, to apprehend these traffickers and get these women the help they need.
3: All right. uh, Governor Gianforte, thank you so much for your time and uh, wish you safe travels as you head back to Helena from uh, from Bozeman and best of luck at the meeting today. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We're like five minutes past a a commercial break, so we're going to come right back. Uh, Harry is waiting very patiently on the phone. We'll be right back with uh, more of talk back right after this quick timeout.
2: Dennis Bragg with the latest forecast from the Town Square Weather Center. A 30% chance of snow Thursday, although any accumulations are expected to be at the higher elevations, especially in northwest Montana and over Idaho. Another weak system brings a chance of snow showers in those same areas Friday with cloudy skies, highs in the upper 20s and lows in the low 20s. A stronger system bringing more snow over the weekend, but again, the accumulation looks to be in the passes and higher elevations with perhaps half an inch in the valleys of west central Montana and more in the northwest.
3: Hey, we are back. Uh, We have Open phones for the next uh, 10 minutes, and it'll be the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Uh, One thing that uh, I had a chance to talk with Ace Sourwine about uh, this morning was the the, the passing of uh, the legendary uh, head football coach for the Montana Grizzlies, Don Reed. He passed away yesterday at the age of 90. And uh, you know, so many memories for me come flooding back of, uh, of of my interactions with with Coach Reed, kind of on a on a on a peripheral level, uh, just being a kind of a cub reporter at the time back back in mm. back in the early nineties, and uh, here in Missoula at, at back when it was KYLT, and then eventually KG, uh, K, KGVO, and and had a chance to. Uh, interview him uh, for a five minutes show every week before the, before each game and and he taught me more football <laughs> in in those five minutes uh, and he was very very patient with my dumb questions but uh, I'll tell you uh, uh, just an amazing man um, he uh, developed what was called the Air Reed offense and uh, he, he quite literally wrote the book on uh, being a college quarterback and success uh, the offensive. Uh, how the offense can can carry the team to victory and that's exactly what happened in 1995 when we went down down to over to uh to uh uh, we defeated marshall in huntington west virginia and uh and won the first national championship so there you go all right, so if anybody has a memory they want to talk about the Coach Reed, that's great. I remember we talked with Jerry Ballas just, was it yesterday? Uh, I think yesterday, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about the, the creation of Washington Grizzly Stadium. Yep. And they call that the house that Reed built <laughs> because uh, they knew that uh, the, the Grizzlies were going to take a step forward. We needed a new facility, and Coach Reed came in and uh, basically... Took it from there. So, anyway, 721-1290 is our number, 1-800-568-5309. We'd love to hear from you. For the next 10 minutes, it's open phones. So we're going to come right back after this quick timeout.
1: Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm -mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late.
5: just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration
2: and the Ad Council.
5: Are you looking for more in this world? Are you ready for something bigger? Then we are looking for you. The big-hearted, the bold, the messy and the gutsy, the teachers, the growers, the builders, the skilled, the sharers, the change makers. We need you. We are the Peace Corps. In more than 60 countries, we go all in and all out. We are volunteers, partners, communities, working together, living together. Bringing our experience, passion, and joy to building a better world together. From tackling climate change in Mexico to keeping kids healthy in Kenya. From sustainable farming in the Philippines to education in Kosovo. We learn more, give more. Share freely and serve boldly. Are you ready to tackle the tough stuff? To go the distance to make a difference? Then we have a place where you belong. Join us at peacecore.gov.
3: Okay, man, this is your time.
2: Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver.
0: Cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper.
3: Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Show the world that you're tougher than tough. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We are back on Talkback seven two one twelve ninety is our number one eight hundred five six eight five three zero nine. We have pretty much open phones for the next five minutes. We would love to hear from you about whatever might be on your mind. We of course we heard about the, the, the sad news of the, of the passing of of uh, former head coach Don Reed, University of Montana Grizzlies, passed away yesterday at the age of ninety. So anyway, a lot, lot to look back on there, and it's uh, it's it's deeply ironic that the Montana Grizzlies took off. Yesterday for Frisco, Texas to play in another national championship game. So it's... uh... It's interesting how all these things work out. So, also joining us in the studio this morning, we have uh, Bob seiden schwartz Good morning, Mr. Bob. How Good are you? Good
6: morning, gentlemen. Yes. Good morning, uh, morning, Missoula. What's that strange white stuff out there?
3: That is, uh-huh. uh, I believe that is called snow. Snow. Yes, right. yes. S-N-O-W. you to have to
6: get reacquainted with
3: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, anyway, uh, you're going to be talking with us. Uh, we have a very special guest coming really, up at 8:30. You know,
6: you, you were just talking about Don Reed, the Grizzlies, and. Moments and coincidences, so much of what we've done. You had Dr. Kia and Dr. Mayer on just this week. Right. They're talking about the issues that we're seeing right now in the Middle East, and you've got such insight from both of them that helps us to understand, set the stage, uh, give us more, you know, possibilities of what could happen next. And now, of course, what are we seeing? There's an attack inside Iraq with a drone. There was a terrorist attack, so they say, inside of Iran. Killed over 120 people. You got the Houthis. You got any, everything that's going on here. So a little bit concerning, about this thing is escalating.
3: Step, step by step. It's step
6: by step. There's yeah. always a beginning, a middle, and an end to everything. Right. And it sure looks like this may be going that direction. I'm always looking for not just to identify what the issue is, but solutions. And we've got an individual today that I think the audience is going to really enjoy because of his background his work that he's doing with his organization, and, of course, what he's attempting to do to change this dynamic.
3: And, 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 if, and let, me, let me tell you, if anybody has um, a Herculean task, yes. it is trying to bring these two groups together, the Arabs and the Israelis, uh, about, well, almost anything, right? I mean, we have to start somewhere.
6: Well, and this is Joseph's task. He will explain and, of course, take questions about his organization, his background, what he's done, and why he is doing this. And, you know, it's not, of course, Israel and the Arabs. Right. Look at the Arab world. There's enough conflict within the Arab world without even having Israel in the equation. But, of course, that adds another dimension.
3: Yeah. Now, he, he's head of a very important institute.
6: Yes. Yeah, and my... He, um, Joseph is a head of the, he's a president of the Center for Peace Communications. Right. And we'll go deeply into this in terms of how did it come about, what's its goal, its mission, where he's finding success. In the readings that I spent extensive time going through his background, he's very grounded, very realistic in what the issues are and what the potential solutions, but also this is a tall mountain to climb.
3: I was going to say one, one would have to be deeply grounded in, uh, in order to you have, do. Any, have any yeah. optimism that, uh, yeah. that something, something good could come out of well, this.
6: And therein also is another insight, Peter, because without that type of optimism and stamina, you will not get, if ever, to that place that you hope to there's got to be a number of victories and defeats and two steps forward one step back
3: you bet tell you what we're going to go ahead and take our eight thirty break now and hopefully we'll be hearing from from our guest here and we can spend as much time as possible uh, visiting with him and uh, joseph browdie and uh, so we're going to come right back uh, by the way, when, when we get into this, uh, the, the phone lines will be open. We'd love to take your, your calls, your thoughts, your questions for our guest after we give him a little bit of a chance to establish himself and, and, uh, and the direction we're going with our interview on this special edition of the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. So we'll get to that when we return after this brief timeout.
2: Dennis Bragg with the latest forecast from the Town Square Weather Center. A 30% chance of snow Thursday, although any accumulations are expected to be at the higher elevations, especially in northwest Montana and over Idaho. Another weak system brings a chance of snow showers in those same areas Friday with cloudy skies, highs in the upper 20s and lows in the low 20s. A stronger system bringing more snow over the weekend, but again, the accumulation looks to be in the passes and higher elevations with perhaps half an inch in the valleys of west central Montana and more in the northwest. Hey, welcome back. Uh,
3: it's time to begin the Montana World Affairs Council portion of, uh, of Talk Back this morning. Uh, here in the studio, Bob Seidenschwartz. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Peter. All right. We also have uh, joining us on the phone right now is Joseph Browdy. He's an expert on the nexus of culture and politics in Arab societies, and active presence in the region's media and policy debates, a senior fellow with the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and senior advisor to the Al Mesbar Center for Studies and Research in Dubai. He studied Near Eastern languages at Yale, Arabic, and Islamic history at Princeton. He developed his Arabic to broadcast quality over a seven-year stint on Moroccan national radio and added Persian to his Arabic and Hebrew as a graduate student at the University of Tehran. So, a gentleman so, who is... So Peter, we're, yes. we're
6: done. We're just going to yes. sit here and let Joseph <laughs> uh, talk to us.
3: <laughs> as long as you don't mind hitting the commercial breaks yeah. for us, Joseph. Yes. Uh, for, first of all, welcome to Missoula. It's good, good to have you on
1: KGVO. Thank you, Peter. It's uh, great to be with
6: you. Joseph, thank you for taking time. Um, I'd like to start with something that um, Peter just mentioned. You have done radio for a number of years, uh, and you were doing it in Morocco, if I'm correct, uh, learned Arabic. And as I started thinking about that, understanding and looking for potential solutions, uh, identifying the issues, there's nothing that replaces having deep cultural insights. To a particular region, country, and people. So, maybe just share with us a little bit in the years that you were doing radio, how did that help shape or bring you to certain places in terms of where you are today?
1: Uh, and, Bob, do you mean specifically the, the experience of doing radio? Yes, in, I in do. Uh, yes, specific. Yeah. Uh, as yeah, we no, have this I've show and get our callers, you had to. Yes. Sure. No, I'm glad you asked about radio because uh, not many people do, but it's very important. Radio is important in, in, in our country, of course, but in many Arab countries, radio is an even more dominant medium, particularly because you have um, lands of uh, internal displacement, uh, like frequent electrical outages. Uh, and mass uh, mass uh, flight and, and, and problems. And so radio is something that people depend on um, who may not actually have TV or reliable access to the Internet.
3: Well, I, 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 Joseph, if you don't mind, uh, I've, I've been in radio for 50 years now. And the one thing, the one advantage that radio has over so many other media is its mobility. You can literally take it with you wherever you go. Uh, it's it, it's It could be there with you in a bomb shelter. It can be there with you in your home. It can be anywhere. Uh, and and that, that source of communication is instant. It's immediate. And it's very powerful.
1: That's right. And in fact, uh, there's even something called, it's a term in Arabic, called crisis radio. I don't know whether this term is used in other languages. But um, what it refers to is, in situations of war and devastation, sometimes um, highly motivated people set up micro-broadcasts in certain areas for the simple and sole purpose of giving people information they need to survive like where is the uh the nearest you know humanitarian aid depot or where do you go to avoid bombing i'm thinking back to the syrian civil war where a lot of crisis radio stations cropped up uh so yeah it's a lifeline
6: and within the context of your work give us some understanding as to some of the takeaways over the years that you have because one of the impressions we may have here, rightly or wrongly, is doing any kind of media in several different types of countries in the Middle East does not have the openness that we would typically find here in the United States in terms of state-controlled media. Or is that not the case? And I'm very interested in who was your audience? Uh, were they calling in? What type of discussions took place as well? These are great insights uh, that kind of help shape what we're going to have as far as this conversation.
1: So, to the first question, um, the issue of state government control of media, of radio, and of all media in the in, in the Arab region, is uh, quite right, as you as you said. Uh, the region is dominated by autocracies that, in some cases, own or control it, or control the media directly. In more developed environments, they they subsidize heavily the media, such that the media companies are reliant on the government, um, and, uh, and so they do um, control the content. However, uh, obviously in the 21st century, where it's possible to hear media from beyond one's own borders, you can be listening to the adversary of the autocracy that rules you, uh, broadcasting its own, uh, you know, state dominated content. Um, And so you can hear certainly a a panoply of competing voices. Now that doesn't mean you hear the truth uh, because um, it can all be different versions of propaganda and the traditional function of so-called surrogate journalism, which I'm, is a term that refers to, for example, Radio Liberty, when it was broadcasting into the Iron Curtain, the idea was that it wasn't um, it wasn't fighting propaganda with propaganda; it was fighting propaganda with actual responsible uh, journalism and covering the story warts and all. And that kind of uh, content is is lacking in the region. I mean, there's some of it, but but not nearly enough of it. Uh, so one of the things that I did uh, was to try to contribute a little bit to filling that gap. Um, my radio experience in Arabic specifically, I've also done radio in English, um, was in Morocco, which is one country where there is a measure of uh, latitude uh, to people who want to express uh, you know, divergent views. Uh, it was a liberal-leaning uh, radio station called Ned Radio that became the most popular uh, privately-owned radio station in Morocco. And I did a, uh, a weekly program called Letter from New York. It was sort of modeled on uh, Alistair Cook's uh, uh, letter, letter from America uh, on the BBC uh, to share an american perspective on what was going on in the middle east
3: and with that uh, uh, i i was just going to tell you that we need to take a commercial break about every 10 minutes so we're up, we're up to that point now we're going to take a quick break by the way our phone lines are open if you have a question uh give us a call at 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309 back with more of uh, the, the uh, montana world affairs council on the radio on talk back after this How is your job to school We are back on Talk Back, a special edition of the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Bob Seiden-Schwartz here in the studio. Joseph Browdy joining us uh, from his office, I imagine, in... Uh, are you in Brooklyn, uh, Joseph? Yes, in Brooklyn, New York. All right, in New York. He's in New York, so he, he's in your territory. He's in New York. <laughs> All right. So, please continue. So
6: share with us, you're doing this radio show in Morocco, uh, more open media in terms of state-approved Tell us a little bit about um, how the show was received. Was it a show where people could call in or you're just giving, um, you know, information out there as you were describing? And what were conversations like when you were not on the radio in terms of feedback and people's response?
1: So the show um, was a recorded show. It was not a call-in show. I sometimes appeared live uh, on other programs on the same channel and, and we did interact but um it was a very convivial uh platform morocco is it's got big cities but it's also got vast agricultural areas and you're talking about a lot of farmers listening to it um a lot of women it had a larger female uh, listenership somehow according to ipsos than a male one um and uh it was um, a real forum because it was actually kind of the most exciting, I would say uh, channel in in Morocco for its featuring of new voices. And that was part of the conceit of the channel and it's strategy for growth. Um, And to your point about the government uh, and the larger issue that I think we're going to come to, um, this was a rare opportunity. Uh, to advance a kind of a liberalizing agenda, promoting tolerance, promoting acceptance of the other, including Jews, uh, that the government was at the same time favorably disposed to. In other words, on the one hand, my program is pushing the limits uh, beyond what the Moroccan government, which is a moderate Arab government, has historically done. But on the other hand, I'm not exactly pushing on a locked door uh, because Morocco has adopted a policy over a long period of time of moving things in the direction of coexistence and including what eventually became a peace treaty, treaty between Morocco and Israel. So the lesson of that experience from my, my view is that the change that people seek works best not only when it's pushed from the top down, and not only when it's people working from the bottom up on the grassroots level, but when, when it's coming in both directions. When you have a situation where a government is willing to lend you some space, and you have a critical mass of people and some radio entrepreneurs and so on who want to, to really use that space, uh, that's when you have an opportunity to, to promote change. <laughs>
3: Now, now, Joseph, forgive me, uh, just as we're working in media, as Nick and I do uh, on, on a daily basis, what we see more often than not is the promotion of conflict. Uh, of, of bringing people of opposite views together and enhancing their differences so that it, uh, more people will listen. And, and I know uh, what you're doing is exactly the opposite, trying to bring people together so that they can talk about things that they have in common. It's not, it's not as, uh, as, if you will, as, uh, 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 you know, whatever it, uh, let's just say it's, it's something that's more, much more needed than the conflict uh, uh, message that is going out right now.
1: Absolutely, and what has developed in in the U.S. and in other Western countries, this move in the direction of tribalism and and hyperpolarization, and people, you know, getting accruing listeners through shock and and uh, you know competing to sound extreme, um, is something that has been that Middle Eastern broadcasters have been working on for a great deal longer. Um, and I would say that perhaps in the region, and this is me being optimistic for a moment, there's a certain fatigue uh, with all of that. Uh, and, and people have who, who are living in failed states where there's civil war and, and, and other kinds of war and, and know where that type of hyperpolarization and schisms leads have this instinctual hunger for an alternative. And so when you get into dire circumstances like that, you have the potential uh, for something that might otherwise not fetch such a large audience to actually intrigue people because it's the new thing.
6: And Joseph, throughout your work, there's also a constant here which very much reflects your commentary. And that's 21st century technology, As, as we have pointed out numerous times on this show with guests and discussions. The Middle East is overwhelmingly a youth population. And these populations have access to the outside world as we initially started discussing. So if we go back to just Morocco for a moment, how many years ago has it been since you did radio there? And has there been a continuum of progress and liberalism as you were describing?
1: Um, I did the the broadcast f- for about seven years until goodness, time flies. But I think until about six or seven years ago. Mm. Um, so, if the question is whether the the trend that that program was a part of has continued in Morocco, I would say the answer is that the overall arc in Morocco has been uh, moving in, to move in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, things erupt in the region, not even necessarily inside Morocco. It may be, for example, the war that is happening now between uh, Israel and Hamas that does inflame tensions uh, in the broader region. And that might uh, indeed set things back. Uh, And so progress that has been painstakingly achieved through a lot of efforts Uh, can be really kind of smacked in the face uh, by the blow of radicalization that happens when you have a war. And that's not just a spontaneous uh, event. It it happens because there is an entire machinery of propaganda. Uh, Iran controls hundreds of satellite TV channels in the region. Uh, The Qatari government uh, controls a very large number of pro-Hamas channels, the Turks controlled And so they are engineering that. That is almost, it seems, part of the strategy of this right. war for them is to use it to roll back uh, the progress that we saw uh over the past few years with the signing of the Abraham Accords and so on and to totally change the conversation about peace.
6: Uh, Joseph, we have to go to a break, but I'm just going to um give you a few things for thought here. So a country like Morocco or others, especially in this time of crisis, becomes very important in terms of an example that with all the issues, even as difficult as it may be, still becomes a beacon of what could be. And I want to just ask you a little bit more about how much, if at all that type of influence has when we come back.
3: Okay, we're going to come right back. Uh, phone lines are open, by the way. If you have a question or comment for for Joseph uh, Browdy, give us a call, 721-1290, 1-800-568-5309. You can also use the KGVO app, and we'll be more than happy to pass that along. So we're coming right back after this timeout. We all make... Hey, we're back on Talk Back, special edition of the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Bob Seiden-Schwartz here in the studio. Joseph Browdy joining us on the phone right now from uh, from New York, from Brooklyn, to be uh, to be uh, specific. So let's continue our discussion. We have about uh, six minutes. Go ahead.
6: Yeah, Joseph, I mentioned Morocco as an entity with all the issues that have and will continue to take place. You've got to have positive examples of what can be. So I'm going to ask you to expand on that a little bit in terms of what has and continues to happen, even with all the challenges in a country like Morocco, but also, of course, uh, how quickly this can be derailed.
1: So to the specific issue of peace promotion, and as you know, Morocco signed uh, a peace treaty with Israel a couple of years ago. Uh, That didn't happen the way that the Egyptian-Israel peace treaty happened, which was secret negotiations and a sudden big piece of news. Instead, it was something that had been developing gradually. There was increased you know contacts and of a social level and mercantile and so on and a and a proactive policy to prepare the population for it when it finally happened. And it was the first time that a peace treaty was signed with that sort of uh, background to it, or I should say, the oldest or the longest standing experiment of that nature. But um, the UAE adopted a similar approach. The Moroccans had been doing, working on this for decades. The Emiratis were doing it for 12, 15 years uh, of, of steady cultural work while they were quietly developing their ties with the Israeli government. Um, And so those are stellar examples of how you bring the population on board, or as much of it as you can, uh, for a peace. And it becomes more than just a peace between governments, a peace between intelligence agencies cooperating to fight common enemies. It becomes a peace that the population is vested in, is making money from, is being enriched Culturally, um, and and that is the the, the very rare uh, type of warming piece that uh, needs to be nurtured and needs to be protected.
6: It it just occurs to me as I'm listening to you, we have elections here every four years, so a direction of a administration can change uh, in different ways. When you're saying that this is something that was happening over a long period of time, we have to have people both internally and externally having a purposefulness a cooperation so within the moroccan government was there a consistency that existed with this objective or does often a situation like this happen very organically it's kind of like hey today that worked uh and that always intrigues me in terms of how do you get from a to b
1: that's a great question. So, one of the advantages of autocracy when you have a, a, an enlightened autocrat, and again, there are a whole lot of disadvantages to autocracy, and I'm not recommending autocracy, but when you have someone with a sense of purpose at the helm, he can uh, commit to a sustained effort, the, kinds of, the kind of consistency of effort that doesn't necessarily survive election cycles in a democratic country mm-hmm. uh at the same time he also has the power to snuff out an initiative <laughs> right with with the, you know as, as the strike of a pen uh so but but that is one advantage that that uh, was brought to bear in the moroccan case and in the emirati case um, so when you're talking about trying to galvanize. Uh, a type of cultural change in a democratic environment. It's about public engagement. It's about, uh, you know, building consensus for an idea across party lines so that it survives uh, electoral transitions. Um, And while that may be more difficult, um, it also is ultimately more sustainable because autocrats don't last, but democratic systems do.
6: So very important lessons and insights in this for us as well. We have about a minute and 37 seconds in counting before our yeah. break. So I'm going to pose a, a couple of questions for you to ponder. Morocco is not exactly in the Middle East. It's on the, if I'm not incorrect, not correct, incorrect, on the west coast of Africa, on the continent. So how does Morocco and Israel come to start to have the conversations and form the business and cultural ties that we now see? Um, when we come back uh, from this break, um, that I would like you to go a little bit deeper into as well.
3: There's something I, I would like to ask. Uh, we have about a minute left, and, and that is you personally, uh, with with what you're trying to accomplish uh, with the increasing animus between, uh, between the, the Arabs and the Israelis and, of course, the, the war that's going on right now, have you personally, because of your dedication to bringing these two groups together, have you faced... Um, any personal threats or opposition that... Uh, might be concerning to you, and, and, and if so, you're very brave to uh, to walk through that and continue your effort to try to find peace between these these two groups. So, anyway, we're, we'll we'll talk about those things again. Our guest here on the phone is Joseph Browdy, visiting with us from New York City, and uh, we're talking about what's going on in the Middle East right now with the uh, the the uh, the Hamas Israeli war that is beginning to expand now into other areas. So, we'll continue that. By the way, the phone lines are open at seven two one twelve ninety or one. 800-568-5309. You can also use the KGVO app, and we'll be more than happy to uh, pass your message along to our guests. So, we're coming right back after the top of the hour. A talk Back continues in just a few minutes. This is
0: Talkback. 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309.
1: This is News Talk KGVO. AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO missoula's news and
2: weather station
3: welcome back everyone it's our number two of talk back continuing here in just a moment brought to you this morning by y west storage out at the y on two smokes way for pricing and availability call 406-510-0590 at y west they're making room for you also brought to you by uh, phillips janitorial for residential and commercial cleaning with 100 percent satisfaction guaranteed no job too big or small 406-260-6617 by our newest sponsor Harrington Surgical Supply, where you can feel confident in Harrington Surgical Supply's discreet and knowledgeable guidance on a multitude of products and medical supplies. And also by Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts. No matter how cold it gets, Gomer says everything you need to make sure your rig starts every time located at Palmer and West Broadway. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, welcome back to the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. We have a very special program going on right now. Bob Seidens Schwartz here in the studio. Joseph Browdy joining us uh, from his office in Brooklyn, New York, and we're talking about issues going on all around the world. So uh, we do have Jeff, who's been waiting through the break. Jeff, good morning. You're on
7: with Joseph Browdy. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Joseph. Uh, Hi, Jeff. It was probably it was probably over fifty years ago that uh, I first started learning about the Arab culture, and, and the key point, or one of the key points that I learned. Uh, was that uh, it tends to be a culture of power in that uh, the person who has the power is considered the person at the top dog and people do not relinquish power. The example that was given was that uh, for the Egyptian uh, Air Force, that uh, in the U.S. Air Force, you know, all the maintenance manuals are down at the low level where the techs can use them, but in the Egyptian Air Force, the chief of maintenance kept all the manuals and if you wanted a manual to repair something on an aircraft you had to go to him and he would check it out to you and then when you were done you had to bring it back because he had the information he had the power and he would not give that up um is that the way that the, the north africans in general and morocco in particular do they also operate under that power dynamic and if so how does that play into relations with israel Hmm. Well, on one level, of course,
1: who doesn't want to hold on to the power they have? And the the dynamic of of uh, you know the logic of uh, autocrats uh, hoarding information and hoarding access and knowledge in order to hold on to power probably transcends uh, the Arab region. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the the example that you gave is certainly something that resonates in different aspects of um, peacemaking so i'll give you one example in terms of the way that um a a a given autocrat say the president of egypt deals with the um, access that he suddenly accrues by becoming a friend to israel and its supporters in the united states the natural thing to do would be to spread that friendship around and ensure that um, that his many institutions of, of state, uh, every ministry gets to team up with, uh, you know, the agricultural ministry in Israel, and every embassy gets to team up with um, the the people who who support Israel's embassies in in foreign capitals where Egypt also has need. But he doesn't distribute the access. Even within his own state, uh, to the extent that, that that the government can benefit from it, because having realized how valuable an asset the alliance with Israel is, his instinct is to keep it all for himself. And he would sooner, in fact, uh, poison uh, the, the, the discussion around Israel and ensure what's called a cold peace than allow... Um, sort of the peace dividend to spread in such a way that everybody would be lifted up uh, by uh, business partnerships, by uh, institutional relationships and so on. So that is a dynamic that affects the possibility of an autocratic country like Egypt truly integrating with a democratic ally like Israel.
7: Is that true for Morocco as well?
1: Well, anecdotally, I I felt uh, in in my own observations that uh, the Moroccan monarch has been a lot more comfortable uh, distributing uh, access and power. And it may have to do with the fact that you're talking about a 300-year-old dynasty. It enjoys enormous popular legitimacy. Um, And in general, um, uh, the, the... Dynastic states, the kingdoms and emirates of the Middle East and North Africa tend to be more durable than the military republics
7: that's very interesting that it would be the uh, the monarchies that are end up being more open and liberal and the uh, the uh, military or even maybe some of the more supposedly democratic institutions that are more insular and uh, isolated. all well, depends on the monarch. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it, it,
1: true. It's a paradox because the, 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 the um, juntas that take power in the 20th century in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and so on present themselves as modernizing mm. forces whereas the kingdoms present themselves as guardians of tradition and religion. Mm. Uh, but in the end it's the, uh, it tends to be the Arab republics that fall on um, uh, the use of religion and, and so on to divide the population and conquer it. Whereas the, the kingdoms rely on weaving themselves into that tradition, becoming a part of the folklore and a part of the culture over a longer period of time. And that enables them to, to mediate culturally uh in ways that a president in his you know suit and tie can't as easily do and gentlemen with that we're up against That's the brain. really really
6: interesting
3: jeff thank you thanks, thanks for the so call I... sir yeah thanks for the call we're going to come right back we'll continue our conversation with joseph Brody. by the way the phone lines are open go ahead bob uh
6: well peter we gotta uh, yeah well,
3: we'll take a quick so, break
6: so Joseph, when we come back from the break, I want to ask you, there's something about what Israel offers that was attractive to Morocco, attractive to the Emirates, and of course, attractive to the Saudis. So I want to go through that a little bit, but I'm absolutely fascinated by what you're describing and the insights you're giving, because I ask myself, how well-versed are and is the political class in this country that has to have the political dealings and the economic dealings with really understanding in an in-depth basis Uh, what you just described.
3: Okay, with that, we're going to come right back. 721-1290 is our number and uh, we'd love to hear from you right after this.
2: You know, in nine- Dennis Bragg with the latest forecast from the Town Square Weather Center, a 30% chance of snow Thursday, although any accumulations are expected to be at the higher elevations, especially in northwest Montana and over Idaho. Another weak system brings a chance of snow showers in those same areas Friday with cloudy skies, highs in the upper 20s and lows in the low 20s. A stronger system bringing more snow over the weekend, but again, The accumulation looks to be in the passes and higher elevations with perhaps half an inch in the valleys of west central Montana and more in the northwest.
3: We are back on Talkback 721-1290 is our number. Bob, the skier going, yay!
6: Yeah, <laughs> we're really a half an inch. I'm just, just stop me right now. <laughs> all right, we are we are
3: continuing with our, our program now, the Montana World Affairs Council on the radio. Joseph Browdy joining us all the way from Brooklyn, New York, as we share what's going on around the world. Ahead,
6: yeah, and, and please, look, uh, folks, you've got a rare opportunity to uh, have a conversation with Joseph, so as always, encourage our callers. Joseph, I asked you before the break... There's something unique about Israel as it sits in that little tiny bit of land surrounded by a whole lot of folks that, in many respects, I look at the future and I see Israel as a key component to openness, democracy, and especially economic development. And I have to believe – I'm going to ask you to comment – why Morocco and Israel, the Emirates, and, of course, prior to this event with Gaza and Hamas – excuse me, Hamas and Israel – the Saudis were very close to a agreement with Israel.
1: Yes. So again, you know, we were just talking about kingdoms versus republics. It's noteworthy that uh, of the Abraham Accords signatories, you have uh, the Kingdom of Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, the Kingdom of Bahrain. Right. The the, the one uh, imperiled. Abraham Accords experiment is the Republic of Sudan which isn't going altogether well Um, and so there's a little bit of a trend there Uh, but more largely um, there is a a convergence of interests Uh, it's been widely noted that uh, you're talking about Sunni Arab powers that share uh, a sense of embattlement uh, in the face of Iranian aggression which Israel also endures um, you have clear economic interests in Israel's uh, success as a global economic power as a global innovator etc and a desire to um, to learn from it and uh, benefit from partnerships with it um, and so those are important factors there are other other factors as well and one of them is for example in the case of Morocco. Uh, a very long and enduring history of Jewish heritage in Morocco on the eve of the Second World War, when uh, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman were uh, were in a in a bar in Casablanca, as it were, there were two hundred sixty five thousand Jews living there, hmm. um, and they are nearly all gone. We could get into why. But the vast majority of their progeny and their living legacy is in Israel, and Moroccans know that very well. One in five Israelis has Moroccan roots, so those kinds of ties are are real. Um, and the uh, incitement against Israel uh, and the, the the wars and the, the very cynical uh, use of ancient prejudice against Jews. And weaponizing it against a modern state has not been able to shake off the the power of that legacy within Morocco that doesn't mean uh, that there isn't a whole lot of opposition to Israel and a whole lot of takers for the kind of brainwashing that we see on uh, on extremist uh, satellite television uh, but cultural ties that run very deep are also a factor
3: Now, Joseph, we do have a caller on the line. We'd like to get our callers on as quickly as we can so they can ask you uh, their questions. Roger, good morning. Thank you for calling. You're on with Joseph Browdy. Go ahead, please.
0: Uh, Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, My question is I'd like to look at the cultural differences between the Arabs and the Palestinians. I know Americans, we like to lump everything together. Uh, Iranians are actually Persians, and they don't like being called Arabs, so... If you can look at difficulty, and also I find it interesting that none of the Arab countries uh, are willing to take the Palestinians in. And uh, uh, it kind of baffles me, but uh, I know Jordan had problems with them when they took them in after uh, either the 67 or 73 war. And uh, I'll let
3: you respond. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Roger. All right. Uh, So,
1: Joseph. Thank you, Roger. Of course, you asked a lot. Uh, there's a lot packed into that question, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick off the following. Um, indeed, Palestinians identify as Arabs, and there is an identification uh, with something called the Arab world, which Palestinians overwhelmingly share. At the same time, it's noteworthy that Palestinians are not the exception to the fact that nearly every uh, national identity in in that region is composed of people from many different ethnic backgrounds who come from different parts of the region and the world. So, for example, uh, there's a big family in the Palestinian areas called Bushnaq and that means Bosnian. And the name is Bosnian because these are people who come from Europe, from the, uh, who came from uh, Bosnia as uh, conscripts in the army of Muhammad Ali in the 19th century. There are people who are of Russian origin, circassians, uh, who fled pogroms targeting Muslims to Jordan and Palestine at the same time that Jews were fleeing the same pogroms targeting Jews by the same Russian czarist oppressors. So uh, there are, believe it or not, there are Ashkenazi Palestinians, if you will, that is Palestinians with European roots, and there are Israelis, uh, of Middle Eastern origin who come from Iraq and Yemen, etc. And all of that is natural and organic to a region that has been always about the movement of peoples uh, across distances over time. It doesn't mean that the Palestinians aren't a legitimate national identity, as so many people feel that sense of identification. Uh, but they are not uh, simply of one people or of one place. They have their own uh, variegated roots in history.
3: We are up against a break. Seven two one twelve ninety is our number. Our guest on the phone is Joseph Brown. He's visiting with us from New York, from uh, Brooklyn. And... Uh we're talking about the group for the Center, the Center for Peace Communications, and we're gonna be talking more about that as we continue. We'd love to have your phone calls. We've had a couple of really good ones so far. Phone lines are open at seven two one twelve ninety or one eight hundred-five six eight five three zero nine. We're coming back after this we are back on talk back a special edition of the montana world affairs council on the radio bob Seidenschwartz schwartz uh joining us here in the studio uh on the phone right now joseph Browdy, and he's visiting with us from brooklyn new york and we do have another caller on the line let's get harry harry good morning you're on with joseph Browdy and bob seiden schwartz go ahead sir
1: hey good morning gentlemen uh yeah the middle east to me points out uh what I, I uh, you can look throughout history is the dangers of mixing religion and and politics or governance. It's because over there they they don't see the difference. It's as uh, uh, far as I can tell that it's you know there is no separation. Well, that's where the West I think has uh, done a good job of keeping them separate, pretty much. But uh, I'm wondering how how do you get past that? Because I mean the. Uh, you have all well, your know, Sunni,
7: Shiites, and then you've got Jews, and then all the variances in between. And you can't, I mean, this uh, goes sometimes beyond reason because it's just, well, God tells you this,
1: and that's what you have to do. So how do you you know, make peace when you have that uh, underlying uh, you know, differences? Indeed, the mixing of religion and politics, as you put it, the way that many people in the Arab region would put it today is close to what you said but a little different they talk about political figures trafficking in religion and what they mean by that is political powers you know a government like iran or a a terror group like hamas claiming the mantle of religion and saying that islam equals following us and people who don't follow us aren't muslims Uh, And that's the big problem people are grappling with with right now. And while there have been uh, basically two successful efforts in the Middle East uh, that were based on kind of secularist experiments, and I'm talking about Turkey under Ataturk and Tunisia under Habib Bourguiba, the general feeling at the moment is that uh, the relevance of religion in peacemaking is to draw from the finer religious traditions, the council peace, the call for transcending uh, human conflict and to actually build on that and reclaim them, taking them back from the people who label themselves as the vanguards of religion in the name of waging a terrorist assault or <clears throat> launching an imperialist project, which is what Iran has been doing. Thank you.
6: Yeah.
3: Harry,
1: Thanks for the call.
6: And Harry, I, uh, while you're still listening, would just gently remind you and our audience that within our own country, religion and politics, while at least on paper, uh, is separate, has also been a tool quite often. And no better example is a conversation I had just several days ago. Somebody said, JFK, was he our first, you know, Irish-American president? More importantly, the first Catholic American president. And I can remember, I'm old enough to remember the consternation and some of the headlines and stories about the Pope being in the White House. So it's not without a homage to our own history to different degrees as well. You bet. All right, so moving on. Uh, We don't like dead air, right, Peter? (laughs) Uh, I I told um, Joseph we would get to this because really it's kind of set the stage for, Joseph, you're the president for the Center for Peace Communications. And many of the things we've been talking about are institutionalized in your organization and your mission. So uh, give us a little background. How did it come to be? What's the work that's being done? Because much of what has been said is exactly as you attempt to make these changes within the organization especially regarding the middle east
1: Mm -hmm. well i've been active in the region for all of my professional life Um, i'm 49 and i've been doing nothing but this since i was 17 years old Um, and have accrued over time uh, a number of friends and partners and we we had been functioning essentially as an organization long before I launched the Center for Peace Communications. But um, what we are doing is to empower uh, individuals and groups in uh, the Middle East and North Africa who want to improve the region, who want a different future, who want to overcome Iranian domination, who want to reach for peace, partnership and development and give them some of the tools of uh uh amplification mobilization um uh strategy uh, that have been denied them uh by the uh, uh, tyrannical forces that uh, that dominate their lives um and so we for example organized 312 Iraqi civilians in Iraq a fleet of uh, 60 cars bringing them from five governorates to a conference room in the north to call for peace with Israel in open defiance with Iranian militias. Uh, and it changed the debate and discussion about peace in Iraq forever by smashing a taboo. Um, and more recently, what we at the Center for Peace Communications have done has been to interview... Um, many gazans men and women all ages from all walks of life throughout the strip and let them tell their stories of life under hamas and do so safely and as we recorded their testimony we brought together a team of animators and illustrators and musicians to um, to take the stories those voices told and to- and uh, produce them into riveting digital animation So we reasoned that we wanted to protect these people uh, in such a way that you wouldn't be able to see their faces, but you would be able, through art, to inhabit their lives. And that became a series called Whispered in Gaza, um, which is 25 animated clips. It's been viewed um, tens of millions of times uh since october 7th and even launched long before in january of last year and now we have a new series with the free press called voices from gaza it's a co-production uh where we have gazans talking about their experiences now in the in the current war um and uh what is striking about what these people say when given the opportunity to speak safely and anonymously away from the minders of Hamas um, and the the impositions of that regime is that a whole lot of Gazans want Hamas out of power. Now, it's no secret in 2019, a thousand Gazan youth organized anti-Hamas street demonstrations and braved gunfire in prison. Uh, and uh, even though they and their families were punished and suffered greatly, they did it again in July, on July 30th of 2023. Um, so there is this will to overcome Hamas rule, but the power that Hamas wields with its rump police state and its machinery of propaganda supported by Qatar, Turkey and Iran prevents uh, anyone from getting Uh, headway in terms of mounting serious challenge to Hamas. So what we wanted to do was uh, at least take one step in that direction by providing a platform to them and doing so safely. And that's what Whispered in Gaza and Voices from Gaza achieved.
3: And yeah, with that, we're up against another break, and we might want to talk about Ballet Beyond Borders yes, when we come it just back. Because, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we've had, we've had uh, programs in this studio, uh, talking about exactly what you're talking about with the arts and bringing people together in, right here in Missoula, in, in Missoula, Montana, yeah. uh, to foster that. So anyway, well, we'll continue. Phone lines are open, by the way. We have Joseph Brownie joining us on the phone, and it's a Montana World Affairs Council on the radio, and we will continue right after this. Welcome back. The Montana World Affairs Council on the radio continues. I'm Peter Christian, Nick Questionson, over there taking your phone calls, producing Talk Back this morning. Of course, we have Bob Seiden Schwartz here in the studio and Joseph Browdy. And we, I know you were regaling uh, Joseph well, a
6: little bit about ballet. Yeah, with on Charlene Campbell, uh, right. as I said to Nick, a force of nature uh, <laughs> yeah. who has done many a program, which happy to make some introductions uh, and see where something like that goes. But, Joseph, I want to come back to we're talking about Gaza and Hamas. And what you have found. And, and this is where it just gets very cloudy in my head sometimes. I, I've always believed that the people in Gaza are getting the short end of the stick. Not only from their corrupt leadership, but in several cases, even from Israel itself. And now, of course, the world looks at what's happening. They see the horrific destruction and the the story starts to get muddled the the views and support and who's doing what starts to get their own compartmentalized people taking sides here so when you're looking at something like this through the mist how do you make sense of this how do you explain to the public what foundationally is right
1: or is wrong or is that not
6: maybe even the issue <laughs>
1: Well, there's so much that's cloudy and there's so much disinformation, you know, how do we even start? But what I'll say quickly is that one of the major misconceptions about what's been happening in Gaza for 17 years, I'm not talking about October 7th and and then, um, is that somehow Israel, when people refer to Gaza as being under Israeli occupation, they create the impression that Israel is has been occupying Gazan streets and cities and so on. There might be troops there. That was not the case. And the governing actor in Hamas, uh, rather in Gaza, that rules uh, Gaza with an iron fist is Hamas. It sets its own policies. It alone decides to steal from its own population, it alone decides to divert aid money uh, in, in the billions that is meant to rebuild the Strip and use it to build an infrastructure of, of, of terror tunnels instead while the population lives in poverty and the leadership of Hamas lives in great wealth. Not even inside uh, Gaza, but actually in Turkey and Qatar. So all of that was sort of ignored and swept under the, uh, under the rug. Now, I'm sympathetic to the notion that uh, that that Gazans have been getting it bad from all sides, and I think that the the issue is that for these seventeen years in which um, Hamas ruled Gaza with an iron fist, and as many people in Gaza put it, Hamas is the occupation, the occupying power in Gaza. Um, the Israeli policy was to attempt to have a modus vivendi. Uh, with that regime. In other words, uh, they thought that through a combination of sort of pressure and incentives, they could deter Hamas attacks on Israel. uh, And meanwhile, incentivize uh, non uh, aggression through a guest worker program and other things. And obviously everyone in Israel agrees today that that was a mistaken policy. It didn't get security for Israelis. And it it didn't give even a measure of stability uh, or, or, or possibility for the Gazans who lived under the occupying power of Hamas.
6: So as we're looking at this issue, it will go on for several more weeks, several more months in terms of the maybe physical component of it, the fighting and such. Once that stops, I've always identified that as even being a bigger issue. In effect, because now that, okay, both sides of one has taken care of the other or reached its objectives, but the rebuilding, does Hamas stay in place? How much does the influence of Iran or other actors continue to have in terms of its influence? And then you've got to deal with the humanitarian issue of these displaced people. So in terms of your institute, is there thought and policy given to this that is actually something you can do to try to help with that changing dynamic?
1: Well, we are doing uh, and we'll continue to do everything that we can. We have an extensive human network in Gaza. And uh, if you follow um, our Twitter feed, which is uh, PeaceCom Center or on Instagram, which is the PeaceComs, you'll see the the information that we're putting out about what our uh, friends in Gaza are telling us. Um, and, and what we're learning and, and what we're suggesting. But to come to your question, it is, it is the, the million-dollar question, indeed. It, and always in these conflict scenarios, it's the question of the day after uh, that is more complicated and more vexing and more long-term troubling, even than the tragedy of the war itself. Uh, and there will need to be an international effort There will have to be multiple players involved. Um, There will have to be substantial money invested in making Gaza a viable place for anyone uh, to live in. The notion of de-radicalization is key. Hamas has built a machinery of indoctrination that has, uh, uh, you know, uh, manipulated uh, millions of people over the years. Uh, into, um, uh, militancy, or I should say, and I, I want to clarify, into lending expression to militant terms. Only a smaller number have uh, actually been involved, uh, in, in militant acts, but they have denied Gazans. The tools of critical thinking and, uh, 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 you know, reasoning that you, you need to introduce through education in any society. They've denied them those tools in order to keep them vulnerable to manipulation. And the I, the idea of de-radicalizing Gaza means bringing real education to Gazans. It means giving them opportunities to engage the outside world uh, and learn about how other peoples and cultures live. Um, And so there's much to be provided uh, if that goal is going to succeed. So it's a tremendous uh, long-term effort, and God help the people who are trusted with that responsibility.
3: We're, we're going to come right back. Uh, phone lines are open. This is a great conversation we're having with Joseph Browdy right now. If you have a question or comment, if you're just uh, uh, glued to the radio listening, at, that's great, too. 721-1290 is our number. 1-800-568-5309. This is one of the most important issues of our time right now what's going to happen in the future with this uh, part of the world we'll be right back after this grizzly are you
5: prepared for an emergency or disaster because it's not a matter of if but when don't find
7: yourself saying
5: i'll trust water bottles and a flashlight to save the day but i'll be proofed wrong
7: with a tornado approaching i will realize that i like a wheelchair accessible shelter
5: when the
3: floodwaters rise i'll be up in the attic with 20 cans of beans it's a recipe for disaster
5: let's prepare so we all have a better story to tell get started at ready.gov slash older adults brought to you by fema and the ad council
3: and we are back on TalkBack. And believe it or not, as uh, Bob just mentioned off air, this hour and a half has literally flown by in, in our visit with uh, Joseph Browdy. Uh, They're in Brooklyn. And we're talking about what's going on in the Middle East, specifically with Hamas and Israel. So let's continue. So I'm going to
6: bring this back to our shores because I, I only speak for myself, not the station or the people here. But it's deeply troubling to me as I have watched the demonstrations in support of the Gazans, not an issue there by direct non-thinking affiliation Hamas. So I look at whether it's demonstrations on the universities or off campus, and I can't help but believe that there is terrible misinformation and understanding of first the historic, never mind the current, and that directly or indirectly you're supporting a terrorist organization who is not helping their own people, let alone what their objectives are with Israel. Uh, Joseph, your thoughts.
1: So uh, uh, the thoughts I actually wanna share are the thoughts of the Gazans we've been talking to about this very issue, because in the Voices for God, from Gaza series, it's the thing I mentioned, that it's a uh, partnership between the Free Press and our organization, the Center for Peace Communications, and you can find it online, <laughs> Uh, there are Gazans who are commenting on those protests and they're explaining why they, those protests are not pro-Palestinian protests as they claim to be, but they're actually pro-Hamas and harmful to the Palestinians. As they put it, uh, these students have to choose between supporting Hamas and supporting the Palestinians' Hamas oppresses. And the, the same Gazans ask, and the clips are online, um, if you're concerned about helping the Palestinians, why aren't you protesting Hamas? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you demanding that Hamas stop fighting so this war ends? Um, and so it's it's rather tragic, you know, to that that actually Gazans who themselves have demonstrated against Hamas in Gaza at great... At, cost to their own lives and their families' lives are somehow um, being harmed further by young people in democratic societies who are instead protesting for Hamas on behalf of the people who threw these kids in jail, tortured them, tortured their families, and so on. And so that is, you know, obviously when we when we understood that there were Gazans who wanted to speak out on this issue, uh, we gave them a platform and we released their testimony.
6: So have you had conversations with any leadership or or educational institutions to have this exact discussion as we continue to see uh, what plays out?
3: <laughs> Especially on, on university uh, campuses uh, right. throughout it, the country here. It's just
6: mind boggling to me that leadership, not, it shouldn't be surprising, but it really does just cause great angst to see the lack of understanding even amongst the most educated of populations.
1: We do hear from elements in various colleges and universities who believe in pluralism, who believe in uh, opening discussions rather than shutting them down, who understand that this uh, movement is not a democratic protest movement, but really a uh, pro-Hamas initiative. Um, who, you know, asked us, and, and our answer to everyone is the same the, the Whispered in Gaza series, which actually gives Palestinians in Gaza an opportunity to weigh in about their own predicament, is, uh, available to the public. It's, uh, anybody who wants to look at it, they can just go to whisperedingaza.org, and it's got, um, <clears throat> 25 animated, uh, uh, clips of testimony. It's got a monograph in which a former Jordanian foreign minister, Palestinians, Israelis, Iranian, Yemeni and American voices weigh in. And it's got a lot of research, rights reports and so on that all goes to the point that uh, Gazans have been oppressed by Hamas for 17 years. They want a different future. And there are ways that the outside world can help rather than hurt in the way that these protesters are hurting Gazans.
3: Now, Joseph, this, this is Peter, real quickly... I I have to imagine it's very difficult for the the world uh, or in the United States with with our media the way it is right now for them to hear that message, because basically all we hear is the top of the trees. You know, the hate, 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 destroy, kill, bomb, you know, uh, all that. And, and that's what makes headlines. But the effort for peace
1: goes un, unheard. Well, I. Um- Obviously, it's, these, these efforts are not easy. But what I can tell you is that, uh, first of all, I'm grateful you've just become maybe an exception that proves the rule, right? You've given me 90 minutes to pontificate here. Uh, but uh, this same material that I'm telling you about has also been featured on, on CNN, on MSNBC, on Fox. We get 10 minutes on National Public Radio a few weeks ago. So there is an appetite for this. People are tired of hearing the same divisive, dishonest, disinformation over and over and over again. And so there are people who will listen. And, you know, we're just going to keep doing our work and uh, and hopefully um, more and more people will pay attention.
3: Fantastic. We're going to come right back. We have a one-minute timeout, and then we'll be wrapping things up. Uh, the phone lines are still open. If you have a question or comment uh, for Joseph Browdy, we'd love to hear from you. 7 to one twelve ninety is our number. We'll be back in one minute. Party alert. And we are back on Talk Back. We have about uh, seven and a half minutes or so to wrap things up, Bob. So uh, let, let's do that. Yeah, Joseph, I, I, Joseph as Browdy. I
6: hear you talking about uh, uh, voices of, of Gazans, and I mentioned earlier, after the fighting stops, there will have to be countries, I would think, predominantly from other Middle East regions that have to participate in this. It cannot be a Western-built type of an alliance. Support, yes, but I see the Middle East countries have to be at the forefront. They will do that at great risk to their own governments as well as other issues that continue to percolate. Would you agree or disagree with that? <laughs>
1: I absolutely agree that uh, a number of Arab governments uh, will be needed to play different types of roles. Uh, the hope uh, and the challenge is that is to see them reach the enlightened, self-interested conclusion that they are ultimately most vested in the success of this experiment because if it fails Uh, It will be a a, a continuous and crescendoing, radicalizing force across the region that will harm the security of every uh, country in the Middle East.
6: And there's another component. My premise has been Israel, all of its good, all of its bad, is a critical player in the economic security for the region because of their technology, because of their research and human capital, the region is suffering and will continue to suffer from two primary issues, water and food security. So I look at Israel and partnerships as critical to ultimately addressing these issues as well.
1: On the eve of this war, we convened a former Iraqi um, uh, minister of water resources and the head of an Israeli uh, Water uh, technology uh, nonprofit in uh, in Israel to talk about what cooperation looks like to solve the devastating problem of drought in Iraq that's killing as many people, actually many more people, and are dying in this terrible war right now. Uh, and it's just an example of the fact that you've got Iraqis who are so keen to address this emergency that their country faces, that they will violate a draconian law that makes it a crime to even talk to an Israeli citizen in order to learn something about how to address water issues that they haven't found the solution to internally yet. And so these people are there. They have courage. They need to be assisted. They need help and, and a network and different types of facilitation. And that's part of why we created the Center for Peace Communications.
6: And in the last couple of minutes here, any comments that you want to make to our audience regarding uh, your your center and your work? Because uh, this has just been an amazing conversation. And we're how, can honored. We find out, how can we find yeah. out more? Tell us more about the organization in terms of location. Very good.
1: Thank you. I mean, I'll say that we are the Center for Peace Communications. Our website is peacecomms.org. We're on Twitter. Peace Comms Center, and we're on Instagram at Peace Comms, um, and so it's all there. And uh, as I mentioned, I think that the thing that a lot of people will find especially interesting right now is Whispered in Gaza, which they can check out at whisperedinghaza.org. Okay. Sure.
6: And Joseph, in the last uh, moments that we
3: uh, have, I, I, I well, do have Peter, a quick, quick question ahead, for please.
1: you,
6: uh, uh, Joseph. Can can people
3: donate uh, to your organization uh, if they wanted to support it? Can they? Is there a a membership or or some sort of thing, or is there a place where they can send funds to uh, aid
1: your work? Yeah. They can. They can donate, and on the homepage, peacecomsns uh, dot org, there is a donate button. Um, We've also just launched a newsletter, which you can get for free, but you can also subscribe to it and pay a symbolic subscription fee and consider it also a donation that's tax deductible. Um, And we welcome uh, that kind of help, and we depend on it, actually. All right. Uh, So, Joseph,
6: American foreign policy, we have hard and soft power. What would you say to the leadership right now in terms of what... Gets the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah, you're shooting missiles at me, i got to shoot them down. But once that's done, on the ground is a different situation.
1: Exactly. The best bang for your buck is competitive soft power. You wouldn't believe how inexpensive it is relative to uh, military expenditures, but it is the only way. To change the conditions in such a way as to make war less likely and I'm talking not only about sort of economic types of soft power uh, and and diplomacy which is obvious and 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 steady soft power but I'm also talking about the kinds of -of out-of-the-box initiatives that we wage and we want others to wage okay this is not not about us this is about us trying to catalyze others to do more of this kind of stuff by engaging people, by creating new media initiatives that change conversations, by facilitating uh, um, uh, new encounters, and by exposing the aspiration of these silenced majorities to have a different future. And so, if we start to fill that gap, and I must say, unfortunately, we've been asleep at the wheel for, for a long time, but if we step up, it's going to make a big difference and it's a great deal it's a stitch in time saves nine you bet
3: joseph it's been a pleasure to have you thank you we look forward to our next visit if you have the opportunity thank you so much thank you both You bet. thank you joseph thank you sir all right wow that's uh very instructive yeah all right. Well, Bob, thank you for...
4: Oh, my help, pleasure.
3: ...help bringing that together. So, Nick, what's coming up on tomorrow's fabulous program, sir?
4: Uh, we're going to dedicate the full two hours to talking about the Montana Grizzlies football team because, as you know, the championship game is Sunday, so we're going to have uh, Denny Bedard from Kiss FM in studio. He also does the the pregame and postgame show with right. our own Ace uh, Sourwine, so Ace will be here too. And so, yeah, the four of us will just kind of... Kick around some Grizz stuff and hopefully get a lot of calls. Well, that that's the whole idea is to get you folks to call in because I know you're all Grizz fans. Heck, you listen to KGVO. We're the voice of the
3: Grizz. So, uh, anyway, yeah, uh, that's, that, that's going to be a great show. And, uh, I'm going to try to, try to make a few phone calls and get some surprises in here if we, if, if we possibly can. So <laughs> you just never know. All right. So we're going to have a lot of fun tomorrow for, for two full hours talking about Grizzly football and, uh, if you'd like me to sing the, uh, the fight song, I'd be happy to do that. Because it's up with Montana boys, yes, down yeah, with the foe. Yeah. <laughs> Good old grizzlies up yeah. for a victory. Yeah. Shoo, shoo the back around the foeman mine. <laughs> Hot times are coming now, brother mine. It's up with Montana boys, down with the foe. Good old grizzlies triumph today, and the squeal of the pig will float on the air from the tummy of the grizzly bear. Have a great day, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs>